You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Two weeks from today will be our second year anniversary as a church. Two years. And it's been, um, it's a short time, but so much has happened during that time. When people ask me how things are going in our church, I tell them, well, we're, we're two years in and we're kind of like a two-year-old in that way. I mean, we, we're learning new things, we're walking around on our own, you know, we're, we're discovering things, but we also fall on our face, like a lot, a good bit, actually. And one of the qualities of a child that I find challenging in that analogy is that children exude life and joy. And we have certainly experienced uh, lots of life, lots of joy in our time in the last two years. But with children, it's like everything is just an adventure, and it just creates this sense of expectancy and eagerness and joy. And we lose some of that as adults, don't we? Uh, This is not just true personally, but corporately. I mean, you, you see it in your own life, you see it in marriage, but you see it in organizations of all kinds, whether it's a startup company or a startup church. Early on, there's lots of excitement, and there's lots of energy, unusual energy. But over time, uh, people just sort of get distracted by the stuff of life. We get weighed down by various kinds of burdens and hardships, and that joy that we once had seems to slip away from us. It happens to organizations. It happens to people. It can happen to us. In fact, I suspect uh, for some of you at different times, it's already happening. This is one of the reasons we wanted to study the book of Acts this fall. Uh, Because in Acts, you have this account of the early church, the first church. And so there is, as you would expect, lots of energy, lots of excitement, lots of joy. And I'm curious to look at it as we walk through, do they maintain that? And if so, how do they do that? Because we have some stuff to learn from them. In Acts 1, uh, Jesus gives them a compelling vision. He says, listen, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. You are going to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, but you've got to wait for the Spirit. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes. They could have never expected what that would be like. Uh, But needless to say, it is explosive growth. Miraculous things are happening. Uh, 3,000 people are added to the church that day. That I don't want that necessarily. That would be create all kinds of problems for us, the least of which would be space. Um, so explosive growth. Chapters 3 and 4, the church continues to grow. There is this authentic, uh, serving, sacrificial community. People are being added to the church daily. There starts to creep in some opposition from others, like city officials, as they notice this growing movement. Uh, but the church presses on. They have a firm belief in God's sovereign rule. They are praying people. And they continue to talk about Jesus boldly. Chapter 5, you get some opposition from within. There's hypocrisy within the church, because we are dealing with people, after all. Uh, God deals with that uh, rather severely. He, He is cleansing the church of this impurity, and a great fear falls upon all the people. It's a good kind of fear. It's like a respect and a reverence to remember God is God, and he's serious about this movement. Then you come to Acts 6, which we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, Todd, Todd has a little phrase, he said, more people, more problems. Well, that's what's going on in Acts 6. The church is growing, there's lots of various needs uh, that aren't getting met because the leaders are getting spread thin. And so they choose these seven men to begin to tend to some of these needs, uh, specifically to care for the widows in the community, so that the apostles then can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Say all that to give us some context for where we come today. We come today to chapter 8. And chapter 8 marks a significant shift 
in the story of Acts. Uh, Everything up until now has been in Jerusalem. And in chapter 8, we're going to move into Judea and Samaria. It's the second part of what Jesus had talked about. And what's often noted uh, by people who study this text is not just that they're moving into this new territory, but why they're moving into this new territory. Uh, It is not, at least as far as we know, that they got together, consulted the strategic plan, had a hard time saying that, and, uh, and decided, okay, now, according to our SWOT analysis, this is the time. We're going to move into Judea and Samaria. That's not what happened. In fact, things were going really well in Jerusalem. I don't get the sense at all that they were thinking about expanding the mission. So why did they do it? Well, because somebody got killed. Stephen, one of the seven who was chosen to take care of the widows, uh, these guys were not just waiters. You know, they were men of good repute. They were full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And we see it in Stephen's life. Uh, he gets tangled up with some of the city leaders because he's performing great signs. He's talking about Christ. They're trying to argue with him, but they're no match for his wisdom. And so they throw him into this kangaroo court, try him. And in his defense, he preaches this incredible sermon. We're not going to look at it. It's all of chapter 7. You would do well to look at it. He, he shows them that this story that they claim is their own, the story about Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David, this story that they claim is their own, he shows them how all of those people in the story point to Jesus, whom they crucified and rejected. Listen to how he ends his sermon to them. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You get all the information from the stories, but you always resist the Spirit of God as he's speaking to you in the stories. Now, they were enraged when they heard these things, as you can imagine, and they cast him out of the city to stone him to death. And after Stephen is stoned to death for his faith, there arose a great persecution in Jerusalem. And the church was scattered. People are being dragged out of their houses and thrown into prison, and so... Everybody scatters, and they move where? Into Judea and Samaria. And because these people have seen Jesus risen from the dead, and they're captured by this story, that's just what they naturally talk about. And so they just keep talking about it, but now they're talking about it in Judea and Samaria. Persecution and hardship is the impetus of God's mission here in Acts 8 and throughout history. Now, that raises a significant tension in our American souls. Uh, Because in our culture, we long for and work for, and in fact have built our society upon the pursuit of comfort and ease. I mean, that is the American dream. And so as Christians, we say we want to be on the mission of God, but as we look at history and we see that, well, often the mission of God has moved forward by persecution and suffering. We're caught between this American ideal that is in all of us and the mission of God through the church. We want good for others, but only after we've secured good for ourselves. Uh, We want to serve and bless others, but we're constantly hindered by the thought of what it would cost us to do so. And here's the real head-scratcher. You look in this text, in these stories that we're going to look at, in the midst of all this discomfort and all this displacement, one of the key themes in all of chapter 8 is joy and rejoicing. Persecution, suffering, displacement, prison, joy, and persecution. We have so much more than they had. 
we don't have any kind of persecution like they had. Yet most of us feel like we lack joy in our lives. One time I was in the back of a pickup truck uh, in Panama City Beach, and we were, we were driving down this strip, and we were kind of stopped, and there was a guy walking on the side of the road. I just felt like the Spirit was saying, hey, you need to get up and go talk to that guy, which is a crazy thing to do, but I was feeling a little crazy. So I jump out of the truck, I go over to this guy, I introduce myself, and we just start walking down the road. And he's looking at me like you would look at me, like, you're a crazy person. What are you doing? And so I just ask him, look, I don't know how to get, it, get around to this any other way, but what do you think about God? And he's like, all right, you are a crazy person. And so, but we walk, and he's a little resistant about having this conversation. And so I just begin to share with him about my life, just what it had meant for me to come to believe in Jesus, how that was radically changing my life, why I would even think about caring about him and having this conversation. We walked for like 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, I did a lot of talking. He wasn't really into it. And I thought, well, this is going nowhere. And right at the end of our walk, he just turns to me and he goes, you have so much joy. How do I get that? I want that. I was thinking about that story because I was reading this passage. And then the next thought I had was, how long has it been since somebody has made that comment to me? I don't even remember the last time. And so I stand here as one who has given his life to the mission of God and church planting, and I'm wondering, where does that joy go to? Why is it so elusive? We're going to try to get to the heart of that today. We're going to get to the bottom of where the joy goes. Uh, Let's look first just at joy in this chapter, the theme of it. Uh, If you want to look at chapter 8, I'm going to just roll through this pretty quickly in the different scenes. There's three main scenes. We have Stephen, uh, which you heard Ron read about. Uh, we have Philip in Samaria, and then we have Philip with an Ethiopian eunuch. First, Stephen. Uh, Stephen's being tried, and, and Luke says that all who were in the court could see that he had the face of an angel. All right, so he's looking up, and he sees this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And it fills him with such joy that the circumstances that are going on around him, his impending death, is really no match for this joy that he has inside of him. You know how when you're with somebody and you're frustrated and you're angry, but they're not? They're like actually really cheery and trying to put the positive spin on things, how that makes you more angry and frustrated? Okay, that's what's going on here. These men are angry with Stephen. He has the face of an angel, and they are enraged. And so they take him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And as they're throwing stones at him, Stephen isn't asking God why. He's saying, Lord, receive my spirit. He isn't cursing these vile men He's saying, Lord, forgive them for their sin. They don't know. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Even in the face of death, Stephen has joy. It's not quelched in it. In fact, it's magnified in the face of death. After Stephen's death, people scatter. One of those people is Philip. And Philip was one of the seven men who were chosen to serve the widows. And so we get these two accounts of Philip ministering in Samaria. He goes down to a great city in Samaria where he proclaimed Christ. He healed many people of various conditions. And there was in this city a man named Simon who was a magician. And so Simon had long amazed these people with great uh, displays of power and wonder and signs. And the people paid a lot of attention to Simon. They regarded him as somebody great, maybe even divine. Uh, But with Philip, it was a a little different quality. The power that Philip displayed uh, was superior to Simon's power. Simon was always going around talking about how great he was, 
Uh, but Simon's message, or Philip's message rather, is about Jesus. It's not about himself. And the people begin to pay attention to this. And it says that the people paid attention to Philip and they believed and there was much joy in that city. The difference between Simon and Philip, incidentally, is the personal nature of what they were doing. Simon has magic. It's, it's mysterious. It's amazing. People are in awe of it, but it's impersonal. They're amazed, but it doesn't change them personally. Philip has the power of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel. And not only is it incredible to behold, it changes them personally. There's no mention of the fact that Simon brought them great joy, but when Philip comes preaching the message of Christ, they have great joy. I want you to see what's going on here. Everyone's involved. People are scattered, and so there is personal ownership of the mission. Everyone's talking about Jesus. There is holistic ministry. Uh, In other words, there is preaching of the gospel. There is meeting physical needs. People are being healed. There is racial reconciliation. I don't have time to talk about this, but... uh, Jews and Samaritans are not not friends. Uh, They have a 700-year-old enmity between them that goes way back, and it is deep. And so not only are these people being reconciled to God, they're being reconciled to Jewish Christians, and there is racial reconciliation, and there's great joy in all of that as the Spirit has this manifold ministry in Samaria. Then an angel of the Lord sends Philip into the desert where he encounters a man who is on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had gone to worship. Uh, Here's Luke's description of this man. In verse 27, he was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And so he just means to say that this guy was distinct religiously, ethnically. He was a person of, of somewhat significant power as he was in charge of the queen's treasures. This is the kind of person that the Spirit has led Philip to. Now, Philip gets there, he sees this chariot, the eunuch in it, and the spirit says, run up alongside there, you know, like crazy people do. And so he comes up alongside the chariot, looking in, and he hears the man reading from the Old Testament. And Philip leans in, and he's like, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy very humbly says, well, how can I understand if I don't have a teacher to guide me? And so he invites Philip up in, and he says, come up in here and listen to what I'm reading. Here's what he read. It's a quote from Isaiah 53, and it says, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And he asks Philip, So who's the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And Philip knows that he's talking about Jesus. And so beginning with that verse, Philip unfolds the whole redemptive story and shares with him the good news about all that God has done in Christ, the Messiah. The man, as they came to the water, this little oasis in the desert, said to Philip, well, what would keep me from being baptized? I mean, he, when his eyes were open to who Jesus is, he believes. And so Philip takes him down into the water and baptizes him. And when they come up out of the water, the Spirit carries Philip away. All right? The man sees him no more, which I think would be a sad thing. I mean, here's this guy who has this strange teacher come in, lead him to faith in Christ, and now the guy's gone for the after party. I would think that would be perplexing at least, sad perhaps, but all the text says is that he went on his way 
rejoicing. Comes up out of the water. This guy's mysteriously gone. I go on my way rejoicing. Well, how could that be? Because he had found something that gave him so much joy it didn't compare to what was going on around him. Here's the keeper of all the queen's treasures who has found the treasure worth keeping. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field and he covered it up and in his joy went and sold everything he had to buy the field. That's what's happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. I just want you to see all of this joy. Stephen with the face of an angel, a whole city full of joy, a eunuch rejoicing on his way. Where's all this joy coming from? There is suffering, there is hardship, but over and above it all, joy. Not a little bit of joy, not like a little joy contained in a little, little group of people, but joy bursting forth, spilling over into everybody's lives, into every city where the Spirit goes. You can't contain it. Wherever the Spirit goes, there's true joy. In fact, when the Spirit comes upon people, one of the things that happens is they lay down their agendas. In other words, they let go of their drive for comfort and approval and wealth and recognition. All of that fades in comparison to what they find in Jesus, and they find true joy. When we make life or church or God or the mission of God about us, about how we might get attention, how we might get our needs met, how we might gain power. Whenever that happens, we short-circuit the work of the Spirit, and you will always find a lack of joy in that person. This is what happens to Simon, the magician. Jump back into uh, the middle story there, kind of verses 9 through 20 or so. When Philip comes down to Samaria, he proclaims the gospel, and uh, many people believe and are baptized. But then something weird happens. Peter and John come down uh, to pray for the people and to lay hands on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I say that's weird because that's that's not the normal pattern in Scripture. Uh, The normal pattern in Scripture is that when people believe in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. It all happens at the same time. And so what's happening here, I think, is an exceptional thing because of the new territory they're going into, because of the enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, I take this to be like an apostolic kind of authentication that, yes, the Spirit of God is moving into Samaria, Samaria, and what he's doing in these people is legitimate. It's real. It's authentic. So they're affirming that. Now, lots could be said about that, but here's what I want you to see. When Simon sees that, his reaction is unlike everybody. He stands in contrast to everybody else in the story. Everybody else has joy. Simon, we will find out, is in the gall of bitterness. Here's why. When Simon sees that the apostles lay their hands on the people and they receive the Spirit, he says, I want that. See, Simon is a sorcerer. He deals in power. and He knows real power when he sees it. And so he wants to get in on this thing. He, he tells the, the apostles, he said, hey, here is some money. Now give me this gift of the Spirit so that whoever I lay my hands on will also receive the Spirit. All right, well, first of all, trying to buy God is ridiculous. We know that. There's something more subtle going on here, though. Uh, What Simon wants is not a personal experience of the Spirit in his life so that he would see Jesus and be renewed. What he wants is to use the Spirit as a commodity. 
He wants to traffic in the things of God so that he might benefit from it, so that he might exact power upon people and that they would look to him and be amazed at him. He still wants it to be about him. Simon's whole life has been about him. Look what I can do. That's his, that's his motto. Philip points to Jesus, but Simon doesn't see it. Simon sees the power, the signs, the wonders, and he, he gets enamored with that. He misses, he misses the point. Signs point to substance. And anytime you make the sign the thing, if that becomes the center of your attention and your worship, you miss the substance. It's like if you have a dog and you know, you're playing fetch and they don't see you throw the ball and you don't want to go get up and go get it, and you're like, no, it's over there. What do they do? They just sit there and look at your finger. You know, they, they don't know that you're pointing to something to go over there. Well, that's what happens when you miss that the sign points to something. I was playing disc golf one time in Dallas and came up beside this other guy, so we finished the round together. And we just started talking, and uh, he, he said something that made me think he was a Christian. And I was like, oh, cool, well, tell me about that. Tell me about, like, just your experience of, of God's Spirit in your life and how you walk with God and what that's like for you and what he's doing in your life. And he didn't say anything. He just pulls out his wallet. I'm not lying to you. I've never seen this before. And he just he hands me this little business card. And I'm like, I, no, I mean, I just asked a question, you know. I get it, and it's, it's like a little certificate of his baptism. That's his answer. His answer to how, what is God doing in your life now is, I, I, here, this happened to me. Do you see what's happening? Baptism is a sign that points to the inner reality of new life in Christ. Joy and peace, compassion, a, a desire for justice and mercy. That, that's what I was asking him about, but he just gave me the, the certificate. You guys have seen the uh, double rainbow worshiper guy? You too? Okay. If you haven't seen it, there's no way to, catch, there's no way to replicate what that is. Um, it, I was thinking about that because we talked about Noah this summer, and God gave Noah rainbow as a sign of his covenant. You know, and it would, be, it would just be ridiculous to see the rainbow and, and worship like that guy. But I want to tell you that when you short-circuit the work of the Spirit by getting preoccupied with the sign and missing the substance that it points to, you are every bit as silly and foolish as the rainbow worshiper guy. I think that's how it looks to God. Like, why would you worship that? Look, look what it points to. That's what happens to Simon in Acts 8. He gets excited about the power that he sees. He joins in with the rest of the people. He believes. He gets baptized. He follows Philip around and he mimics everything Philip does as best as he can. He's enamored by it, but he misses that they point to the gospel. I had a guy come into my office one time and wanted me to teach him how to read the Bible. I was like, well, that's cool. That's what I get paid to do, I think, so let's do that. And I start talking about various ways to think about the Bible. And then for some reason, it, just, it doesn't feel right. I just stop to ask him. I say, hey, why do you want to learn to read the Bible? He's like, well, I go to the, the small group in the church and everybody there reads the Bible and knows what they're talking about and I just want to fit in. It's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, that's not bad. But the Bible reveals a person. And so, do you have an interest in knowing that person? He's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, well, let's just walk through the basic story then. And so I just ask, you know, hey, do you believe God created the world? He's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, do you believe that we, we sin, we rebel against God, you know, there's distance between us and guys. He's like, yeah, I think so. And, okay, well, do you believe that God sent Jesus into the world to, to die for sin? He goes, I think so, yeah. 
Okay, we're doing pretty well here. It's like, what about uh, three days later when Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus raised bodily from the dead? He goes, no, I don't, I don't think so. It's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I mean, I, I like the idea of it. I just don't think he like literally bodily rose from the dead. It's like, okay, well, listen, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's part of the gospel message. We are captured by this story, the whole of it. That's what's in the Bible. And so if you want to learn to read the Bible, that's the story in there. And so do you see what he was doing? He's, he's coming into a church. He's trying to fit in. He's trying to do the things that the Christians do, but he doesn't see that what they do points to who they serve and who they worship. We do this kind of thing. We miss the substance because of the signs. Simon, for him, everything becomes transactional. He's like, look, I'll give you a little bit of money. You give me the spirit. My friend is like, look, you teach me to read the Bible. I'll fit in. We do that. We, we say things like, okay, God, if I do this, if I follow the rules, then you, you've got to bless me. If I, you know, pray with enough fervor and for long enough, then God will have to do what I say. If I serve people and I do all the right things, then I should get some recognition for that. If I do all these things to make up for my failures, then God will have to forgive me. Do you see how all of that is transactional? Grace is not transactional. It's benevolent. God gives it to you with nothing in return. You have nothing to offer. This is what Simon misses. This is why he doesn't have joy. This is why he's in the gall of bitterness. Because he can't stand what's going on around him because he doesn't have it. Well, Peter, uh, who is familiar with being rebuked himself, gives him a rebuke. Verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Now, the wickedness is not simply that he's trying to buy the Spirit. The wickedness is that he does not get grace at all. He is completely building his righteousness upon himself, not Christ. Repent of this. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, here's Simon's response, verse 24. He doesn't repent. He doesn't admit his wickedness. He doesn't see the beauty and the glory of God and embrace the forgiveness that is his in Christ. He says, pray for me so that none of these things which you said will come upon me. He's still just, it's about him. Don't let these consequences happen to me. You can amass everything the world has to offer. Power, money, attention, achievement. You can get it all. It will never lead to the kind of joy that you want. In the kingdom of God, true joy is not about acquisition, not about getting. It's about giving yourself away in worship and service to God and service to others. Uh, when I was on staff with crew at the University of well, I wasn't with you for Texas. I was working on campuses around the region. And we heard about this kid in New Orleans that had started a, a Camps Crusade, you know, whatever, franchise on the University of New Orleans campus. And, uh, but nobody knew who he was. And so I was sent to go find this kid and see what was going on out there. So I just walk onto this campus. I have a name, Nick. That's it. Lucky for me, there's only one dorm on this campus of 17,000 people. So I just go to the dorm. I start asking for Nick. And I finally find him. I couldn't believe it. 
I was like, Nick, are you, have you started Campus Crusader? He's like, yes. So I was like, okay, well, let's go to lunch. Let's talk about what's going on. And so we start talking about everything that he's doing. And Nick is just this kind of sheepish guy. And he would never look at me. And he kind of does this when he talks. And I'm like, Nick, I need to know what's going on here. Do you guys have like meetings? He's like, well, yeah, it says we're supposed to have meetings. But I don't, I don't really even know what Camps Crusade is. I just needed like a front to get the thing going. And I was like, okay, well, what do you do with these meetings? He goes, well, we get together and pray. But then we just kind of go out on campus and see if there's ways that we can serve people and talk to people about Jesus and just kind of help the campus. And he had all these events and things that he was doing to kind of bless and serve the campus. And I thought, hey, let me help you raise some money, man. He goes like, no, 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 that's okay. I, I decided a long time ago that if God wants to, us to do it, he'll provide. I was like, well, that's, that's cool and all, but hey, seriously, let me, I know some rich people. Let's, let's get this going. Let me raise some money for you. And he goes, that's, you don't really, I, I worked two jobs this summer and I saved up and I, I think we have enough to do what God wants us to do. Nick is not the most talented person. I don't think he really knew what he was doing, but he was so full of joy. And, and God was so using him. He had all these little Nick clones that were just following him around and doing what he did. I looked at him. I said, hey, listen, I'm going to leave. Like, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to leave because my organizational self will completely mess this thing up. And you have got the spirit, and it's working, and I'm just going to get out of here. I never saw Nick again. The thing that Nick said to me, though, was, I said, why are you doing this? He said, well, I've got two more years left on campus. And I just want to see if by the time I leave, every student here gets a chance to hear about Jesus. Nick is just giving himself away. And it's leading to so much joy in his life. I know people in this community and in other communities who have a practice of giving generously, in secret, anonymously, except that I know, but mostly anonymously. And... Uh, what I've noticed in them over the years is, is it gives them such joy. They love that people don't know. And they love when they hear the stories of what happens to it. They just, they just revel in the joy of what it means to give and bless others. And not just them, but the people who receive it. I mean, can you imagine having a specific need and out of nowhere, a generous gift comes to meet that need and you don't know who it is. Who would you give thanks to? God. So people worship. The givers and the receivers worship together though they don't know each other. I've seen in this community people giving themselves away in service. I can't count how many care calendars are going around right now, people watching people's kids, living in people's houses. There's lots of stuff, just really practical ways that people are sacrificially giving of themselves. And you know what it leads to? Joy. I see it in the community. People who are serving, the people who are receiving, worship God together. Whenever you give of yourself, you're not going to probably be Stephen. You're probably not going to get stoned to death. But when you give of yourself, whether it's your money or your time or your energy or your prayer, it blesses people and it leads to joy in other people's lives. That's how the kingdom works. This is our vision for a church. I mean, it's on your little, little thing there about providence. There's three parts to it. The last part in that paragraph is that we would be a people who are compelled by the love of Christ to live for others. That is, that just our norm would be that we would deny ourselves as Jesus called us to, and that we would live for the good of others. That's our vision for a church because that's what we see in Scripture. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. People are giving themselves away. And the commentary is great joy and rejoicing. Now, let's get personal for a second. How do we experience this joy? I mean, it's great to see it here. It's great to know that God does that. But in some ways that increases the tension because like, yeah, God does that and I don't have it. What's going on? Right? Here's the thing. I can't just tell you, be joyful. Right? You ever tell a sad person, be happy? It just doesn't work like that. I can't just say, have joy. 
Because partly joy isn't something that you go get. Joy is something you receive. Joy comes as the ministry of the Holy Spirit goes to work in your life. It's a result of something that God's doing in you. Tim Keller says that the Spirit of God has a simple ministry. It's not mysterious, but it is marvelous. The job of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus Christ real to us. The Spirit does lots of things, but that's the primary work of the Spirit, to speak of Christ, to stir our affection for Christ, to point us to Jesus, to apply to us all the benefits that are ours because of our union with Christ. The Spirit does all of that in a way that we feel it. Like they're not just theological abstractions. It's something that we personally experience, and that's why it brings us joy. So when we come together to worship, when we open God's Word, when we take communion in a minute, the the Holy Spirit attends those things, brings power to them to stir our affections for Jesus to free us from the accusation of our enemy, to to cause us to look to him, to believe his truth above the lies that we hear in our own lives. Spirit points us to Jesus so that in him our joy might be complete. All the joy that we see in Acts 8 works like that. The Spirit of God points people to Jesus. Stephen's being stoned. What does the Spirit do? Gives him a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is the joy for which he endured the cross, despising its shame. The Samaritans in this village who've been following this magician who can't really change their lives but only impress them, what does the Spirit do? Well, not only does Philip do power, but he proclaims to them the word of Christ. He teaches them about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And because they now have the truth, they are reconciled to God and to each other, and there was great joy. Jesus is at the center of it. The Spirit is working to point them to Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch, why does he have such joy? Well, the Spirit comes. He's been reading this passage. He can't get it, but then the Spirit illumines Jesus in the text to him through Philip, the teacher. And he, has, he believes. His eyes are open, and he goes on his way rejoicing. That's how it works. It's simple. It's marvelous. The Spirit points us to Christ, and we worship him, and it brings great joy. When we read a text like this, like the, listen to what the Ethiopians reading, reading. Like, come close into the chariot here. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. You see, as we read that, the Spirit intends to impress upon us that that slaughter is meant for us. That that Jesus, the innocent one, is denied justice because of us. He dies in our place so that we can be spared, so that we can have life and joy. When that sinks in, it affects you. I don't know how it affects you. I mean, you might cry, you might sing, you might laugh, you might raise your hands, probably not in here, of course, but you might do that. It doesn't matter. You might take action, you might serve somebody. 
There's myriad of ways that the Spirit could, could manifest itself in your life as you're affected by the truth of the gospel. The means isn't important. And as soon as you start thinking about the means or the expressions of it, you lose sight of the substance. So how do you know it's sinking in? Because it affects you. And I'll just be honest with you. I, as I was reading this today, I was struck by how often I mistake knowing something in the abstract for experiencing it personally. Look, I know about substitutionary atonement. I know what Jesus did in my place. I get it. But it doesn't always sink in in such a way that it moves me. That has to do with just my own hardness of heart. It has to do with the fact that familiarity, I just tend to overlook things. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. If that is the pattern of our lives, that we know things in the abstract, but it doesn't affect us, uh, we will shrivel up spiritually. I promise you. And so all I know to do is simply to call out to the Spirit and say, Spirit of God, would you come in our lives? Would you illumine Jesus to us so that we would worship him and so that we would not care about ourselves and our righteousness and our kingdom and we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that we might have great joy? Uh, John Piper, real quickly, says that we often infer the presence of the Spirit in our lives logically. You know, because like, we know that if you receive Christ, then you have the Spirit. And so he, he points to when Paul in Acts 19 asks someone, well, did you receive the Spirit? That sounds like a really weird question to us. He's like, well, yeah, I, I believed in Jesus, so therefore, logically, yes, I received the Spirit. And what he goes on to point out is that everywhere in Acts where it is explicitly talked about the Holy Spirit coming upon people and people receiving him, it always has a visible manifestation to it. Not like crazy. It's not always like people performing miracles and stuff. I mean, the New Testament talks about this fruit of the Spirit in all kinds of ways, like peace and patience and joy. I think John's just trying to say, look, don't live a life, a spiritual life that is inferred by logic alone. There needs to be an experience, a manifestation of the power of God in your life, or we ought to ask ourselves, well, did I receive the Spirit? The mission of God through the church is marked by tremendous joy. And so if we call God Father, it means the Spirit is in us. If we have patience that passes understanding, if we uh, have a peace that passes understanding, if we have great joy, if we have compassion upon people, all of that is a sign that the Spirit is in us. And as the mission of God goes forth, we have great joy because we're looking to Christ and what he did for us. And the world around us has great joy because his love compels us to live for them and not for ourselves. Let me pray that for us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.